what kind of transgression is a four-month-old committing? When you're four months old, you don't have any concept of obedience. Your brain is not developed enough to be obedient. I can't even begin to wrap my brain around how anyone could think that a child needs to be dominated yeah. to turn into a good person. It's going to produce just the opposite. That's what we need on this earth is a bunch of broken people yeah. who have all manner of mental illness, who have all manner of sociopathy because of the way that they were brought up and because of the way they were treated by their parents. That is precisely what this world needs. If you are an ex-evangelical who is currently about the business of raising children, assess your words, assess your actions, assess your emotions, and ask yourself if how you're doing things or handling specific situations is smart, practical, or appropriate. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith, and life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider, and I'm Shell, and it's time to get Unbound. You know, Lots of parents fuck up their kids with bad parenting skills. It's a thing that happens. I don't think there's a family in the world that doesn't have a degree of dysfunction, but the levels of dysfunction that are manufactured by this hideous religion are largely unnecessary in any context, and they can do a lot of harm. A lot of harm. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we are going to be discussing how Christian parents, in an extremely huge number of cases, elevate child abuse and family dysfunction to levels unknown. There's some rage-inducing shit in our near future, folks. But first, love is love and that's that. The Satanic Temple strikes back again. And a rare high note ending courtesy of our favorite batshit prophetess. It's Christians behaving badly. Take that. And that edition. <laughs> what have you got for us this week? Well, 25 years ago, a bipartisan Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act. This was a huge victory for the Christian right. For those of you who don't know what this is, it was meant to solidify that a marriage was between one man and one woman only. This 1994 act was passed by just about every Republican in the House, and they were joined by 118 Democrats. And a Democratic president signed it into law. However, this week, there has been a reversal of those numbers, and it looks like same-sex marriage has become a wedge issue in the Republican Party. When voting on the new Respect for Marriage Act, which would protect same-sex marriage and overturn the Defense of Marriage Act, all the Democrats voted to support it, and in a surprising move, they were joined by 47 of their Republican colleagues. Wow. I mean, that's... That's huge. That, that, that is huge. I and, mean... I mean, practically unbelievable in the current political climate. I know. That just... And it blows my mind that yeah. that's a thing that actually happened. Seriously. This would seem to indicate that even as Christian nationalism infects the highest echelons of politics, traditional marriage has become a lost cause for the religious right. It also happened in direct opposition to that specific part of the Republican Party platform specifying the one-man-one-woman marriage. Of course, this means that some of the Christian bigots are apoplectic with rage. 
Newt Gingrich will eventually release a statement on the sanctity of marriage after talking it over with his third wife. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking the exact same thing. I know. Uh-huh. You gotta love the infighting. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's entertaining, to say the least. Of course, we have to remember that most of congressional Republicans still believe that same-sex marriages should be invalid. But if it offends the religious right, let's consider that a hard-won victory. So this next one, I'll say it again, I fucking love the Satanic Temple. Yeah. And I love how outspoken they are, and I love how they hold people's feet to the fire when it comes to the First Amendment. And this is just another example. I want to stand up and cheer for them when I read stuff like this. So I'm not going to steal any more of your thunder. Go ahead and (laughs) tell us what they're up to now. A Kansas school district shows everyone how things should be done. Most public schools have a dress code of some sort. The dress code for the Hayes Middle School in Kansas looked perfectly normal until they got to this line. Do not wear items of apparel that might be distracting, unsafe, offensive, revealing, or suggestive. They give a brief list of what subjects should not be on clothing, such as direct or indirect references to sex, alcohol, tobacco, drugs, profanity, or... Satanism. I love how they just call that one religion out. This last item is what brought mother of three, Mary Turner, out to the Hayes Board of Education meeting. I raise my children according to the seven tenets of Satanism. And while children of other faiths can wear clothing that declares their family's religion, my family's faith is specifically called out and banned in the school handbook dress code. Your own non-discrimination policies state that you do not discriminate against students based on religion. Your own mission says every student in every classroom, every day. The Satanic Temple has been a federally recognized church for many years. Banning Satanic students from wearing clothing that declares their faith while allowing students of all other faiths to wear similar clothing is an act of discrimination. Damn straight. I am here to ask that the school board remove Satanism from their dress code policy and that they no longer blacklist my family's faith and the faith of other families here in Hayes as distracting, unsafe, or offensive. Later in the meeting, the board discussed the issue and it became clear that some of the members just hadn't considered the implications of that statement. Another board member suggested a simpler statement that focused on disruptive clothing rather than listing out specific examples. The end result of their discussion? The board agreed to have the administration rework the dress code. A modified version will be discussed at an upcoming retreat in two weeks, just before the start of the new school year. This is how these meetings should work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm amazed. The board listened thoughtfully, discussed the matter, and decided that they would rework the dress code. Stories like this make me feel like all hope is not lost. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I'm, I feel like these couple of stories just weren't anger-inducing enough for me to put too much of my own two cents into right. them. They're both kind of examples of how a plan should work out. Yes. And it's refreshing to not be sitting here having my blood boiling before I have to get into our main topic and and ask people for money and all of that stuff that we do. Yeah, right. But it is definitely refreshing to see dialogue happening here. 
and not just people trying to match each other in a battle of wits. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, kudos to the school board for actually listening yeah. and actually doing something proactive that defines what their actual mission is. I, I think she meant mission statement there. Yeah. But in their mission statement, there's a sense of inclusiveness and targeting just one religion. Yeah. Like that was definitely an example of a, of exclusivism and they were called out and they listened. They yeah. actually listened. So again, kudos not only to the Satanic Temple for once again standing up for the First Amendment. But kudos to the school board for actually understanding what their responsibility was in terms of the First Amendment in this particular instance. This is a much more positive Christians behaving badly than what we're used to. Yeah. And we're going to round things off with um, just, a, just a tiny blurb here about our favorite batshit prophetess. Yeah. So before I steal any more of your thunder on this... Let's have this, and let's have a good laugh over it. I got this um, off of Twitter. Christian prophetess Kat Kerr says, We will all have the option of driving in a star cruiser in heaven. Ooh, sounds like fun. Ooh, they run on light, and they can be found parked next to your mansion. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? So what does God need with a starship? Not yeah. much, but he's got one for each of us, evidently. Evidently. Of course, there's also, you know, you can basically just wish yourself somewhere. Well, yeah, you can be, be you can basically apparate your way around heaven according right. to her, too. So what the fuck do you need with a star cruiser? I guess if you want to just sort of take the grand tour. I guess, but I, I feel like if you could just go wherever you want in heaven whenever you want, then... I don't imagine that this would be a necessary thing, but you know what I'd like to say? I would like someone on our side, yeah. not their side, on our side, start compiling all of this shit that she says and like literally make a movie out of it. <laughs> Revelations 2. It would be it would be such a fucking mind trip that uh, you know, and I, I don't know, either she just has a really overactive imagination mm -hmm. or she is addicted to something. She is high on something yeah. when she comes up with this. I don't know what that answer is. All I know is that her shit just gets crazier and crazier and crazier yeah. every goddamn time she opens her mouth. And people believe her. That's the thing. That's the scary part. What, who, who is that guy that she's always on his show on Steve YouTube? Steve Schultz. Steve Schultz, yes. Yeah, Elijah Mr. Streams. Bobblehead. Elijah Streams, where he just sits there and does the bobblehead thing yeah. and believes everything that the people who come on his show say implicitly. Yes. So, yeah, she's got a base of support, that's for sure. And there are people stupid enough to actually believe every word that she's saying. I mean, you know, it, it's I think I've said this before about her, but it's kind of sad that she's choosing this particular path because clearly she has an imagination yeah. that would have her probably far more successful if she just started writing stories around some of these contexts. Now, not necessarily that these things are happening in heaven, but, you know, pick a planet, make yeah. one up. Yeah. 
Yes. And you could actually make a lot of this work yeah. and write a decent narrative around it. Mm-hmm. But instead, she's doing this. Yep. And in terms of the kinds of charlatans and whatever you want to call these people, I don't know how much money she makes at this. I don't know. She's, pro- she's definitely not making Kenneth Copeland money. There's no way that she's doing that well. No. But I still feel like if she channeled some of this in the right direction, then she could probably be doing better than she's doing right now. Yeah. But I think that she's just too batshit to be able to figure that out or or implement it. It's much easier to just start spewing this shit off on YouTube. Yeah. And that's what she does. Yeah. And then we get to take it apart, which is even more fun. Yeah. Well, evidently, she's making enough money to keep her in pink hair dye. Yeah, yeah, there is that. It's always, like, perfect. Oh, yeah. Like Frenchie and Grease perfect, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also, Christopher Reeve is in heaven, teaching people how to fly in an amusement park in heaven. Oh, for fuck's sake, there's an amusement park in heaven, and Superman is up there teaching people how to fly. Yes. That's really, really good to know. You know... Why is none of this in the Bible? This actually sounds like fun. This actually sounds like someplace that I would want to go. Yeah. But, you know, I I don't know how much Kat Kerr has read her Bible, but what you're actually promised right there in the book is nowhere near as interesting as this. No. Not by a long shot. Yeah. Okay? That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> and with that, it, it's nice not being all wound up. Yeah, I At know. the end of, of Christians behaving badly. It's yeah. nice not feeling all wound up, but uh, that's going to change in just a couple of minutes, yeah, I'm sure. But before we get into our main topic, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And any size donation you can make is going to help us help others get and stay unbound. That's what we're here for. That's why we keep coming back with this content every single week. We're here for you, but we're here for the people who are on the fence, who are still knee-deep in this thing and need to hear the point-counterpoint. We're here for all of you. And I know that our audience is represented by people in every one of those categories. So why ever you're here, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting us week after week and coming back to hear what we have to say next. And if you can help us with your dollars, fantastic. If not, then help us with all the ways that we mention every week, your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all the things that make podcasts grow and talk about us. Tell as many people as you can that we're out here, especially the ones that you know could benefit the most from this messaging, who may be on the fence about what they believe or who are so set in the things that they believe that it may seem impossible to get through to them. Well, you'd be amazed at what the right words and the right logic in the right context can do to sway someone's opinion about something. So just let them know that we're here. And share out episodes that you know will speak directly to certain people. Link out to that episode. It could change somebody's life. It could steer somebody's thinking in the right direction. There are all kinds of things that you can do that don't involve money at all. But if you do have the money to help us out, once again, patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network is going to be where you go to make your pledge. And we thank you in advance for at least considering helping us out in that way. So next week is a road test week. I'm going to be stepping away from the mic to take care of business. Two weeks from now, we're coming back with 
an episode on 12-step programs. <laughs> this is one that, that's kind of been in the back of my mind for a while, and it just sort of jumped out at me this week, and I said, okay, this is the time to do it. So we're going to do that, and we've got some other stuff planned for a little bit further down the road, but I definitely want to save some of it. We already announced that our next movie is going to be Joe versus the Volcano, and that's coming out August 14th. And before I keep rambling on and on about all of this, once again, thank you for just considering helping us out. And let's just dive into our main topic on toxic Christian parenting. So we're going to begin this conversation with a trigger warning for child abuse. Some of the things you're going to hear this time around are beyond awful, and I just want to be clear on that point as we begin. So strap yourselves in, people. This is going to be some kind of a ride, especially in the first half, because we've brought these idiots up before in passing on this show, but we're putting them directly in the crosshairs tonight, because as far as I'm concerned, they are at least passive murderers, and I think that they might even have a bigger role in some of the things that have happened as the result of their words than any court appears to be willing to hold them accountable for, which I think kind of sucks. Mm. But in 2008, Hannah Williams was adopted from an orphanage in Ethiopia and brought to the United States where she died at the hands of her Bible-believing American parents. Their notion of Christian discipline required breaking her will, a remarkably common belief among conservative evangelicals. To that end, they frequently beat her, shut her in a closet, and denied her meals. Ultimately, she was left outside where she died of hypothermia exacerbated by malnutrition. The parents were convicted of manslaughter in her murder. And just so that we're clear, a lot of what we're talking about in this first segment comes from an article on Salon.com, and I'm going to be directly quoting and giving my commentary as we go. But here's the context of what happened with this poor little girl. In carrying out their obsession with child obedience, Hannah's adoptive parents drew tips from Tennessee preacher Michael Pearl, whose Spare the Rod, Spoil the Child book to train up a child has been found now in three homes of Christian parents who killed their adopted children. They're not killing their biological children. Oh, no, 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 no. They're killing the children that they're adopting. You want to talk to me a little bit more about people in states where abortion is now banned or close to being banned, and they're holding up these signs, we'll adopt your kid? Oh, listen up. Just keep listening. Because clearly, at least among evangelical parents, I don't want to paint it with a broad brush, but I'm, I will say that I believe that it's more prevalent than even what we're going to be talking about tonight, where some of them have an out-and-out obsession with fostering and adopting, but they never love these kids the way that they love their biological kids. Mm -hmm. They never treat them the way they treat their biological kids. And that is very problematic, especially when your treatment of your adopted child leads to murder. And this has happened at least three times in instances where people were following the lead of these two idiots. And I think that it absolutely sucks that these people are still out there walking around free while children are dying as a result of things that they have to say. The title of the book comes from a stanza in the book of Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
And these were things that were kind of pounded into our heads when we were in Bible college, when people talked to us about things like marriage, family planning, how to be good parents. That was a verse that came up a lot. And the context of it was usually the fact that it's our job to lead our kids to Jesus and teach them good Christian principles. Because if we start doing that when they're young, then when they're 60, they're still going to believe all of it. And it's definitely true. This is why churches will target children from birth forward with the indoctrination. But Hannah wasn't the only victim of uh, the Pearl's convoluted teaching on child rearing. Lydia Schatz, adopted from Liberia, was seven when she succumbed to liver failure after being whipped with plastic tubing for several straight hours interspersed with prayer breaks by her parents. Her parents, Kevin and Elizabeth Schatz, said Lydia was being disciplined for mispronouncing a word. They beat this child for mispronouncing a word. Lydia's sister, Zariah, 11, also adopted, was hospitalized with similar injuries, but ultimately recovered. That part of the story came from a website called hisinvisiblechildren.org. And there's one more. A Johnson County woman has been convicted of first-degree murder in the suffocation death of her adopted son and sentenced to life in prison without parole. A jury convicted 47-year-old Lynn Paddock after deliberating for three hours following a three-week trial. Paddock was also convicted of child abuse. Prosecutors said the woman wrapped four-year-old Sean Paddock in blankets so tightly that he couldn't breathe and also hit him with plastic pipes. His crime, ladies and gentlemen, he kept getting out of bed when he was supposed to be going to sleep. So he received a death sentence for not being obedient to his mother and just going to sleep. He died in February of 2006. He was the youngest of six adopted children, some of whom testified about abuse from their mother. Paddock showed no emotion as she was sentenced and didn't speak as she was led away by sheriff's deputies. That came from the Winston-Salem Journal's website, journalnow.com. So what do all these things have in common? Well, I think I already spoiled it. The same book was found in the homes of each the same book was found in the homes of each of the victims, a book called Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl. And what you find in this book is hideous. Now, before I get into any of this, I do want to mention that the things these people suggest are way out on the fringes. The problem is that their books and videos are very popular and far too many people have fallen into their trap. These things happen every day in Christian homes, maybe not to the point where children are murdered, but right. definitely over-disciplined and definitely with extreme forms of corporal punishment, and it has a lot to do with these people. And like with anything else, evangelicals have a strong tendency to take things that other Christians say at face value and never bother to question the right or wrong in it, especially if the person speaking postures themselves as an authority. Right. Uh, and that's what the pearls do. They posture themselves as authorities on child rearing, and they are anything but. For the average evangelical, all anyone has to say is that their messaging comes from God, and the sheep are all over it. So, with the trigger warning well in effect, let's look at some of the insanity that these people recommend. These excerpts were compiled in an article on pathos.com, and I'll be quoting the article directly and adding my commentary along the way. 
The pearls recommend whipping infants, infants, okay, only a few months old on their bare skin. They describe whipping their own four-month-old daughter on page nine of their book. They recommend whipping the bare skin of every child on page two for, quote, Christians and non-Christians and for every transgression. What kind of transgression is a four-month-old committing? I mean, when you're four months old, you don't have any concept of obedience. Your brain is not developed enough to be obedient. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they would start this on a child who's even younger. Parents who don't whip their babies into complete submission are portrayed as indifferent, lazy, careless, and neglectful. That's on page 19. And they also suggest that if you aren't adhering to their way of doing things, you are, quote, creating a Nazi. That's right there on page 45. On page 60, they recommend whipping babies who cannot sleep and are crying and to never allow them, quote, to get up. On page 61, they recommend whipping a 12-month-old girl for crying. On page 79, they recommend whipping a 7-month-old for screaming. I, you know, yeah. There, there were there were multiple times during my research for this where I did the lid slam thing and walked away. And to be perfectly honest, I'll be a little bit more hard on my sleeve about this a little bit later. But when I look at stuff like this, and I look at the mistakes that I made as a parent with our son, and I made a lot of mistakes as a parent with our son, at least, at least it never got this far. Yeah. And at least I didn't have my hands on this book because back then mm. I could, I would have taken it at face value. I really would have because of the way that I was raised and the attitudes that permeated the way that I was being raised. I guarantee you I would have taken these people at face value. So thin threads and thank goodness they didn't have the influence on me that they could have. But as we will demonstrate later, you don't need idiots like this to think this way or take certain degrees of action because you are the authority and your children need to listen to you. I think that that's true when they're 16. I just don't think it's true when they're six months. I don't think that it's a reasonable expectation that a child that young is going to be compliant. And that is what they're going for here is compliance. On page 65, co-author Debbie Pearl whips the bare leg of a 15-month-old she is babysitting 10 separate times for not playing with something she tells him to play with. Oh, bitch, you better be thanking your lucky fucking stars that it wasn't my kid. Yeah, seriously. Thank your lucky fucking stars. On page 56, Debbie Pearl hits a two-year-old so hard that, quote, a karate chop like wheeze came from somewhere deep inside. On page 44... They say not to let the child's crying while being hit to cause you to lighten up on the intensity or duration of the spanking. On page 59, they recommend whipping a three-year-old until he is, quote, totally broken. That's what we need on this earth is a bunch of broken people yeah. who have all manner of mental illness, who have all manner of sociopathy because of the way that they were brought up and because of the way they were treated by their parents. That is precisely what this world needs. Jesus fucking Christ. 
On page 55, the pearls say a mother should hit her child if he cries for her. I, 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 I'm I, at a loss. Even. I'm at a loss. What kind of insanity, what kind of reprobate mind gives birth to ideas like this? I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's beyond crazy. And what's worse is that people listen to them. On page 46, the pearls say that if a child does obey before getting whipped, whip them anyway. And if you have to sit on him to spank him, then do not hesitate and hold him there until he is surrendered. Prove that you are bigger and tougher. Defeat him totally. Jesus Christ, you're not going to war. I know. This sounds like, oh, take a breath, spider. Take a breath. Yeah. You know, I can't even begin to wrap my brain around how anyone could think that a child needs to be dominated yeah. to turn into a good person. Like I said a moment ago, it's it's going to produce just the opposite. On page 80, they recommend giving a child having a tantrum, quote, a swift, forceful spanking. On the same page, they say to whip small children on their bare skin until they stop screaming. The book says don't be bullied. Don't be bullied by your child. Yeah. That you can sit down on and subdue, okay? Don't be bullied. Give him more of the same. They say to continue whipping until their crying turns into a wounded, submissive whimper. These people are monsters. They are. And my question here is, what happens if your child's crying turns into a wounded, submissive whimper because they are running out of strength and dying? Yeah. What happens then? On page 47, they, they recommend the tools of their trade, their various whips, including, quote, a belt or larger tree branch to hit children. The pearls recommend pulling a nursing infant's hair. Page seven, look it up and describe tripping their non-swimming toddler so that she falls into deep water. That's on page 67. I love how they just outline this so that you can go and just see it for yourself. They recommend ignoring an infant's bumped head when he falls on the floor and ignoring skinned knees. What if your child has a concussion? Yes, What if there are internal injuries? What if the knee is broken? There's no concession for any of this. They also say that if your child is roughed up by peers, rejoice. It's okay for your kid to be beaten up by thugs at school. Okay. And on page 103, the pearls say if children lose their shoes, let them go without until they, the children, can make the money to buy more. Are you fucking kidding me? Seriously. This is just, it's unbelievable, the things that they say and the fact that there are people out there that listen to them is just, I I will never understand. I will never, ever. And you know what? I was not the greatest of parents. I had anger issues up the wazoo when Liam was growing up, and it was never a thought in my mind to do anything like that. At the end of the day, I wanted him to be happy, and I wanted him to be well-adjusted. Not an easy task with me as his father, but I did want the best for him. Yeah. And I feel like for all the times that I failed, there were at least two or three times where I succeeded in moving him forward. and helping him be a good person. And I'll get a little bit more into that a little bit later. But guess what, folks? There's more. 
This list comes from the National Post, which is, in fact, a conservative source. They don't have a whole lot to say about this. They just sort of post the quotes without saying a whole lot. So whether or not they agree with any of this is not entirely clear. But here are a couple of more excerpts. In support of the rod, the book says, let's talk about spankings. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That's Proverbs 13, 24. What God says goes exactly opposite the feelings of many parents and educators. The passage clearly states that a failure to apply the rod is due to the parents hating of the child. No, cries a mother. I love my child too much to spank him. The parent who responds thus does not understand, one, the authority of God's word, two, the nature of love, three, his or her own feelings, four, the character of God, or five, the needs of the child. Your child does not need to be hit. No. And that is not an act of love. You are not demonstrating love by beating your child. On preventing bullying, picture a kid of any age who's miserable, complaining, and a bully to other kids. Fail to use the rod on this child and you are creating a modern-day Nazi. After a short explanation about bad attitudes and the need to love, patiently and calmly apply the rod to his backside. Somehow, after eight or ten licks, the poison is transformed into gushing love and contentment. I've never seen a child content after a session of corporal punishment. He says the world becomes a beautiful place. A brand new child emerges. Yeah, what no. kind of delusional bullshit is that? And then he says pain is the point. Make it a point to never use your hand for spanking. The hand swatting is a release of the parent's own frustration. A hand on a diapered bottom is useless as a spanking, but it is effective in causing permanent damage to the spine. There is no surface pain to the child thus whipped. Any pain would be deep inside, similar to a fall or a car wreck. Any spanking to effectively reinforce instruction must cause pain. For the one-year-old child, a small 10 to 12 inch long willowy branch stripped of any knots that might break the skin, about one eighth inch in diameter is sufficient. A one foot ruler or belt or three foot cutting of a shrub is also effective. I love how he actually goes through and describes the weapons and how to make them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh yeah. Oh, here, here it comes right here. The whole concept of the head of the family. This is what Michael Pearl has to say about his role in the family. He says, I am the general. My wife is my aide and advisor, the first in command when I am absent. I rule benevolent, benevolently. You rule benevolently, you, you, you sick fuck? You think this is benevolent? Love and respect are my primary tools of persuasion. No, they're not. The things that you just mentioned in the previous paragraph switches and belts and that sort of thing. No, those right there are the primary tools of your persuasion. It has nothing to do with love. The more, more of this religion, framing hate as love and love as hate. It just, it, it never ends. He says, I lead, not command from a distant bunker. All of my family knows that I will lay down my life for them. Consequently, they will lay down theirs for me. If I was your kid, buddy, I wouldn't be laying down Jack Q shit. No. Even today, without looking at the children, I can snap my finger, pointing to the floor, and they all, including the ones over six feet, 
immediately sit. I can point to the door and they all exit. And you think this is a good thing? Yeah. These are adults who are still terrified of their father. I have no idea why any of them would even find themselves in his house at that point. Yeah. I can only imagine that they are there because they've gotten so used to doing what he says that they're like Pavlov's dogs at this point. Yeah. Daddy says, come over. They just come over. Daddy says, sit. And they sit. Daddy says, exit. And they exit. They're like trained animals. Yeah. And that's, that is, that's what I see here. So I think that we are going to, uh, we're going to close the book on that part of things. Mostly because now I'm starting to get so heated up that uh, I feel like we need to to, uh, to change gears just a little bit. So to be fair, the Pearl's opinions and methods are thought of as extreme, even by a lot of evangelical parents who are equally crazy and obsessive about their roles as parents, but in different ways. So there are different levels of dysfunction that evangelical parents find acceptable. And there are definitely a lot who think that these two are batshit, which is a good thing. I mean, there's that tiny, tiny ray of hope that at least some of them think a little bit better. So that's a good thing. There also was a petition with 9,000 signatures asking Amazon to remove this book from their site. I can tell you right now whether it's whether or not it's still there. I was just on Amazon. I think it is. So let's see. Okay, well, it's one of the first things in the search. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's there. Yeah. It is there. So uh, I guess that was not a successful campaign mm -hmm. because if there's one thing that Amazon likes more than anything else, it's money. That thing is worth money. It's going to be on their site. Yeah. It's that simple. But I'm not here to bash Amazon tonight. Maybe I will some other time okay. if, uh, if I can find a good context for it. But moving on, let's talk for a few minutes about a little thing called bodily autonomy. Bodily autonomy is defined by the United Nations as, quote, the power and agency a person has over their body and future without violence or coercion. What that means is that all people, and guess what? Children are people. Mm. All people have the right to live free from physical acts such as touch to which they do not consent. Does this include not scooping up or pulling the arm of a child who is about to walk out into traffic? No. Does it mean that parents don't have the right or privilege of hitting their children? Absolutely. I had thought for a while about doing an entire episode on corporal punishment because a lot of evangelicals believe in it and implement it in numbers that I still find appalling. But I do think that the atrocities we've already conveyed should serve as warning enough about that in any context. Let me be abundantly clear. Most instances of corporal punishment are way more about the parent than they are about the child. Any way you want to look at it, corporal punishment is a manifestation of the parent's frustration with not being obeyed or with behaviors that are common to children. And there are behaviors that are common to children that can be very annoying and irritating. And again, when a child is very, very young, the notion of compliance has varying definitions and there are limits to what you should expect a very, very young child to do when you tell them to do something. So a lot of times people get frustrated and they slap the kid and they say, well, I, I slap him to get his attention. No, you slap him to release frustration. 
Yeah. Which gets his attention. Let's just make sure we're clear on that. One major infraction of which many Christian parents are guilty is expecting their kids to be little adults from way, way, way too early on. That is just flat out not how it works. I agree with things like letting tantrums play out and not giving in, just ignoring it until it stops. But there are limits. There are limits to every kind of parenting style, whether it involves these kinds of extremes or not. Just for the sake of example, when my son was very, very young, we were at the mall one day and he saw these roly-poly-oly toys. Yeah. And he reached out for one. I told him, no, we're not buying that today. And I started rolling. He was, he was still in a stroller. This is how small he was. And just started rolling away from the toy. And he pitched a fit. And just kept yelling, polioli, polioli. Like, mm. you know, and and it, yeah. it definitely did tug at my heartstrings. Yeah. But I also knew that I couldn't just give in. Yeah. At that point, um, with all due respect, I don't think we had the money to give in at that point. No. But um, but even if we had, I still think that the way that I handled it was right. I ignored it and we left the store and that taught him that he's not going to get whatever he wants whenever he wants. The same thing that he used to whenever we would drive by Burger King uh-huh. and he would start going off about the fries. Yeah. And he would pitch a fit if you drove past Burger King. Well, guess what? We drove past Burger King a lot and he pitched a lot of fits and we ignored it and he turned out okay. Eventually he learned that that wasn't going to get him anywhere and it just basically died out. It wasn't a thing after a little while and that's the way that it should be. So these things are appropriate. Denying him a lollipop from the barber and confining him to his room for hours because he screamed his way through a haircut. Oh, that was not one of my shining moments. And there were many of those moments where my frustrations got the best of me when he was very, very young, especially before we knew that he was autistic. You know, a lot of things, to my credit, I changed the way I did things quite a bit when we got that diagnosis. And I do believe that it started before because we knew what was going on with him. We knew. Long before we had a diagnosis, we knew. But there were instances and, uh, and situations in those early stages where Spider's parenting skills didn't exactly shine. And that is putting it very, very, very lightly. There are many things about my son's childhood that will haunt me until the day I die. But my son is still in my life and seems to want to be there. And if your parenting style is anything like what I just described, take this advice and run with it. Okay. Make I'm sorry part of your parental vocabulary starting right now. And I mean like today. When my son brought up the incident at the barbershop years later, I literally broke down in tears in the middle of Six Flags because I hadn't thought about it in a yeah. while. And, you know, his, his memory is scary. The, yeah. th- the things that he could hold over my head, it's pretty damn scary. He remembers a lot more than I give him credit for sometimes. Yeah, I know. And every now and then he comes out with something like this and it's like, I had forgotten about it. And then I felt like shit for forgetting about it because it's something that I should be angry at myself over. Right. You know? And there are a lot of things that I should be angry at myself over. Decisions that I made and things that I did, there, there's plenty. I've paid and continue to pay my penance over. So there we were in the middle of Six Flags and I'm a complete mess and now he feels bad. And 
I literally begged his forgiveness for that and a lot of other things that I'd done, first and foremost because I was angry, but also because I felt justified by examples that I'd seen from other parents, most of them evangelicals. And let me tell you, there was a lot for me to apologize for. And I'm sorry has always been part of my parental vocabulary, and it's the only saving grace through a lot of this, is that even though I may not have been in the emotional or mental capacity to hold myself back, this was long before any semblance of anger management or therapy for me, but I think that one thing that I've always had to my credit is my capacity for I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that it goes far. So keep that in mind. If you are hearing anything that you find relatable about any of this, I can tell you there is no way to fix it. There's no way to turn back the clock. But I'm sorry, we'll get you far. Yeah. Okay? And you know what? Especially when he was really, really little, I'm guilty of at least watered-down versions of some of the things that these people recommend. You know, I didn't need them to be a shitty parent. All I needed was my lack of experience as a parent, my uncontrolled anger, the example that I got from my own mother and grandmother, the people who raised me. But a lot of it also came from what I observed of other conservative Christians in my life growing up. You know, they taught me that extreme remedies for disobedience were valid. They taught me that corporal punishment was valid. I was hit a lot as a kid. You know, it's not not to the point of uh, visible bruises, welts, scars, anything like that. But I had hands raised to me way more than once. And, of course, with no one else to, to turn to for help and as a new parent, of course, I thought that this was okay. And like I said, when we got his, uh, when we were at least close to getting his diagnosis, I put a stop to a lot of it. But again, you can't unring the bell. And regardless of what your child's situation is, putting a hand on them is never appropriate. I've learned this and I've learned it the hard way. And I know that there are going to be people out there, even other atheists, who may disagree with me. I mean, I come from the generation that likes to post memes about, yeah, I got the belt all the time and I turned out okay. I'm a well-adjusted person and I'm a successful person and it's because my parents did this. No, it's not because your parents did that. It's in spite of the fact that your parents did that and you walked away from it with the perspective that it was something right and good that they did for you. It was neither. I hate to burst your bubble, but it was neither. And the other other half of that equation, I, I said that I'm sorry is a very necessary part of your parental vocabulary, but so are the words, I love you. I love you would also better be part of your parental vocabulary and you'd better be qualifying it with loving behaviors and apologies from when your words and your actions don't line up. So now we're going to turn the volume down on the atrocity just a little and demonstrate some other ways that evangelical parenting can do damage. For starters, and we've mentioned this loads of times before, but the indoctrination starts at birth, literally at birth. And there are Christians out there that joke about this, talking about how they were born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. It's not far off. Liam was only a couple weeks old the first time that we brought him to church. And I was concerned about how loud it was in there. You know, we, those loud worship services and whatnot and what effect it would have on him. He slept through all of it. He literally slept through all of it. But uh, that that didn't make it right. There's there's no two-week-old that belongs in an environment like that. 
And it's shameful that there are church organizations out there that prey on newborns and literally write Sunday school and nursery curriculum for them. Yeah. It's amazing. So the indoctrination starts at birth and just gets more aggressive as the child gets older. Then there is the concept of insane overprotection. Christian parents far too often expect their kids to behave like little adults, but they also go out of their way to make sure that their kids not only know that they are children, but whose children they are. And in this context, that's a two-parter. First and foremost, they're God's children, and the parents are their guardians on earth. And they're shielded from any and all things that could cause them potential harm. This doesn't just include things like not running out in front of cars, but also things like not learning those heathen concepts like evolution and other legit branches of science. I'm going to get into a few more specific examples of that in a minute, but let me let me just make sure that everyone out here understands the whole concept of helicopter parenting, it's not new to millennials, not by no. a long shot. I saw this in evangelical circles all the time. Kids who were even disallowed certain youth group activities, like going to Action Park, because there would be too many scantily clad people around, and it wasn't a godly thing for the youth group to be doing. My youth pastor got complaints about going to Action Park because it was a water park. And yeah. everyone was walking around in bathing suits. So, you know, we can't have our 13 or 14-year-old boy looking at girls in bikinis now, can we? That's the level of overprotection that we're talking about. No one gives two shits about how anyone's dressed at a water park, especially a 13 or 14-year-old boy. Is he going to notice the girls? Probably, but he's going to be noticing the water slides more. Yeah. I promise you. He's going to be noticing those rides and the wave pool and all of that cool stuff. He's going to be noticing that way more at that point. But that's one of the extremes that I've seen it taken to. Some of my friends were not allowed to participate in lock-ins because we were going to be watching movies. Mm. You know, it, And yeah. for some of them, it didn't even matter if it was a, uh, a Christian movie or a secular movie. We were talking about things like Disney movies, live action or animated Disney movies. And some of these people still had a problem with it because anything that touches pop culture, and I'm going to get into this in a second too, but anything that touches pop culture is a bad thing. So uh, that's the level of overprotection that you see from some Christian parents. I'm going to camp out on this one for a little while. Being an authoritarian parent, and there's a lot of this, and yeah. I dipped a toe in this also. I wouldn't call myself a full-on authoritarian parent, but I certainly did implement some of the things we're going to talk about right now. This is, in fact, a very popular parenting style among Christian parents, and I am taking a lot of the bullet points in this section from an article on verywellmind.com. All of this is in the show notes if you want to look it up. This is the most controlling style of parenting there is. It's predicated on the notion that I'm the adult, you're the child, and you will listen to me. And you know what? I can relate to this. I can yeah. relate to taking that posture with my kid more than once. The article says, rather than valuing self-control and teaching children to manage their own behaviors, the authoritarian parent focuses on adherence to authority. Instead of rewarding positive behavior, the authoritarian parent only provides feedback in the form of punishments for misbehavior. Now, authoritarian parents do lay out a lot of rules. They micromanage and they keep lots of tabs. 
if school is out at two o'clock and the kid isn't home by 2.15, guess what? They're going to have some splaining to do. These kinds of parents also enforce a lot of unwritten rules that they simply expect children to follow as a matter of common sense. This was my mother. Yeah. This was my mother. You know what? My mother was not a controlling authoritarian parent, but again, there were bits and pieces. Right. And this was one of them. There were a number of conversations that um, that were predicated on the notion, you should just understand this and know. There was a good bit of that in my house growing up. Uh, way, way too much. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. And I tried to get my mother to understand this more than once. But she got more dismissive of logical and reasonable dialogue yeah. over time. The older a teenager I became... I think she just got more burned out and didn't want to have a dialogue about any of this after after a while. And I used to tell her that if you don't lay out your expectations in black and white, how am I ever supposed to be expected to satisfy your expectations? You know, this is true in any relationship, but I think that it's worse in a parent-child relationship because... No one should ever just expect you to get inside their head and understand what they think about anything or understand how they will feel about your actions in any context. There's no way. We can't read our parents' minds. And the very notion that uh, you should just understand something is bullshit. Rules need to be laid out in black and white. That's just the way it is. There is also very little warmth or nurturing in authoritarian parenting. Authoritarian parents can be very cold, aloof, and harsh. They criticize to a much greater degree than they praise, and that's if they ever show praise or approval at all, because a lot of them don't. Our kids get way further in life when they know that we're proud of them than they ever will if they are only ever told when we are disappointed in them. Authoritarian parents offer little to no explanation for punishments either. They're quick to spank and slow to redirect or explain why certain behaviors are unacceptable. Authoritarian parents are very my way or the highway. They don't give children choices or options. There is no negotiation, and because I'm your father and I say so, is supposed to be reason enough to comply with anything. Uh, spoiler alert, that's not good enough. No. In no context is that good enough. You need to communicate with your kids. And you need them to understand why something is acceptable and why it's not. And because I said so is not a reason for anyone to do anything. Authoritarian parents are often impatient with misbehavior. Uh, this was my mother too. Yeah. They expect their children to simply know better than to engage in undesirable behaviors. And again, that's ridiculous. My mother used to pull the line on me. You should know better. Okay. Well, how? That's the real question. How? If you want me to know better, you're the parent, then you need to teach me better, not simply tell me that I should know. And that's true of anyone. Authoritarian parents don't typically trust their children to make good choices, so they make those choices for them. This involves a number of things further down on this list. Authoritarian parents rarely provide their children with opportunities to demonstrate an ability to make good choices, and they refuse to let their kids make mistakes. Rather than letting kids make decisions on their own and face natural consequences for those choices, authoritarian parents hover over their kids in order to ensure that they don't make mistakes. This is where helicopter parenting comes in. Yeah. 
sheltering, protecting, making sure that everything is good at all times. Everything is good. They're safe. There are no problems. Everything is situation normal 24-7, 365. Authoritarian parents are often unwilling to negotiate. We talked about this a second ago. Authoritarian parents take a very black and white approach to everything. They don't believe in gray areas and they don't leave room for compromise or negotiation. Now, they take a black and white approach to uh, their own decisions and their own modes of discipline and that sort of thing. It would be nice if they were that black and white about their expectations. Yeah. But they're not. And here's the worst part, as far as I'm concerned. Their kids don't get to have a voice when it comes to rules or decisions that affect them directly. Now, you don't want your kids swindling out of every consequence when they do things wrong. But sometimes it's necessary to let them plead their case. Because guess what? As the parent, you could be wrong. And if you don't give your kid a voice then guess what? You don't learn anything either. And another spoiler alert for you, parenting is supposed to be a learning process. You're supposed to get better at it over time. You don't get better at it when you're slamming the door on open dialogues with your kids and not listening when you are told that you are wrong. Okay? Sometimes your kids will tell you that they're wrong because they want to get out of whatever uh, consequences coming down the pike for whatever it is they did. But sometimes they're legit right. And we need to listen to them. We need to at least hear them out. And an authoritarian parent usually isn't willing to do that. And in some cases, not able. Because a lot, of, a lot of this stems from their own upbringings and things that they've gone through as children in other parts of their lives. And it translates into how they parent later. It's not an excuse. It's just the way it is. It's just psychology. Now, if you want to see a good example of how all of this plays out, I recommend, if you've never seen it before, watching the movie The Dead Poet Society or watching it again, taking note of how Neil Perry and his father interact in that movie, Mm. because this is a clear example of authoritarian parenting. It starts out with dad showing up at the school and informing his son that he's not going to be on yearbook that year because he has to focus more on his academics. The father in this movie has dictated to his son that he is going to go to medical school and become a doctor. It's not what he wants. He wants to be an actor. And then when dad figures out that he's gone behind his back and been in this play, he is apoplectic with rage with this kid. And I forget whether he pulls him out of school or what the consequence was. All I remember vividly is that the kid is home and it culminates with Neil blowing his brains out. You know, now it's an extreme example, but think about how your actions and the way that you treat your kids is affecting your kids because they're not all going to blow their brains out. They may just decide that they hate you and not want to be in your life after they are out from under your roof. So you know what? Don't take an authoritarian tack with your parenting if you still want your kids to be in your life when they're 30, okay? Because one way or another, they'll figure out ways not to be. Yeah. I know plenty of people who are estranged from their parents, and I hear stories all the time that fall right in line with the kinds of things that we're talking about right now. Whether they're Christian parents or... Buddhist parents or whatever, you know, atheist parents, when we can be every bit as guilty of this as anyone, it's just that it's more prevalent in certain circles. And there are groups that just pick the ball up and run with it just a tad bit better and more than others. So 
again, not going to, I'm not necessarily putting the evangelicals in the crosshairs with this one, but I saw a lot of this with my friends in youth group. I saw, I even saw it in some of the people in college, the way that they talked about their relationships with their parents. I remember one guy in particular who was constantly on the phone with his father and in tears because dad was micromanaging him from miles and miles away and berating him over the phone over all kinds of minutia. Because I've I had conversations with this kid more than once. And some of the things that his father had to weasel his way into were just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Your kid's in college. Let him start being a grown-up now. That's your best course of action. That's that is how you can help your kid the best, is to let him grow the fuck up. Just take a step back and let him grow up. Oh, and on the heels of that, authoritarian parents participate in a little thing called shaming to really, really despicable degrees. Authoritarian parents are highly critical and use shaming to cow their children into compliance. For my mother, it was phrases like, what's the matter with you? And I heard that a lot. I heard that a lot from her and from my grandmother. She wasn't the definition of authoritarian, but she did have this particular game mastered. They both did. My grandmother did too. As a parent, for me, it was, my God, you just never learn, do you? Yeah, those words have come out of my mouth toward my son. I'm not at all uh, proud of that. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite, but it's just the way that it is. And I know that that was an outgrowth of the sheer number of times that I was asked, what was the matter with me? I know it was a, a direct outgrowth of that. And then the other one for me was, you know that this makes me angry and you just do it anyway. Why? Well, you know what? There were lots of answers to that question yeah. and answers that I actually knew, but that didn't hold back the frustration. You know, yeah. there, there were a lot of instances where I absolutely knew the answer to that question, but it felt better to lash out and make it abundantly crystal clear that I was unhappy than it was to take that, that necessary step back and have a snowball's chance in hell at actually getting through to him. And some other popular phrases in this arena include, how many times do I have to tell you the same thing? Why can't you do anything right? And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm at the end of my patience with you. You know, I've used these. I've used these too. And I've had them used on me. I've had them all used on me. Yeah. The article then goes on to explain that authoritarian parenting is often not something that parents engage in intentionally. I didn't do any of this intentionally, and I don't think that it's in the forefront of the minds of a lot of evangelical parents who hit a lot of these bullet points. I don't think that it's something that they're consciously thinking about when they're in the thick of it. But if you're listening and you are an evangelical parent... And a lot of these bullet points are applying to you. Guess what? You're an authoritarian parent. And if you want your kids to still be in your life when they are 30, it's time to start making some changes right now. So what are some of the sources of these kinds of parenting behaviors? Well, a lot of it comes from upbringing. And, you know, we learn from example. My mother and my grandmother were the only examples that I had of parents. And with all due respect, neither of them were good ones. Unexplored mental illness is another big one. I think that that was a major, major thing with me mm. was that I wasn't tapped into the reasons why I was so angry and shied away from it for a long time because I was afraid that if I learned what was going on there, that I would lose part of myself. You know, we were talking about Star Trek V and what Kirk said about, you know, I need my pain it makes me who I am. 
well, you know, there are certain things about us to which that applies, but there are certain things that we need to step up and face. Right. And a lot of those things, for me anyway, had a direct effect on how I was as a parent. I mean, let's not forget that Liam was 12 going on 13 when I finally got my ass in therapy. So there were a lot of years to do a lot of damage before I finally had enough courage to take that crucial look in the mirror and say enough. But unexplored mental illness is a big one. Uh, Childhood trauma can also trigger authoritarian behaviors as a parent. I don't think that I could stamp myself as authoritarian as a parent, but I definitely had certain authoritarian traits that governed my decisions as a parent. You know, and like I said, a lot of it did come from my mother and my grandmother, but I also have clear memories of other Christian parents and conversations with a lot of youth group friends that just got stuck in my brain. And these things came out when I became a parent. I vividly remember my girlfriend's father, um, not my senior year of high school, using the terms tight reins to describe the way he and his wife approached their parenting style with her. And it was more with her than the other two kids. I noticed this distinctly. And she was also the one who, by her own admission, strayed the furthest later on. And uh, and since I mentioned that, let's talk about how this kind of parenting affects children. They can have an overly fearful personality. That's uh, That's a big one. They associate obedience and success with love and the lack of love with personal failure. They conform easily, but also experience depression and anxiety over their denial of the opportunity to develop that sense of autonomy. They can display more aggressive behaviors toward others. They display fewer pro-social behaviors. They can be very antisocial, judgmental, and jealous of anyone who doesn't have the perceived levels of self-discipline that they possess or that they perceive themselves to possess. They are resentful when they witness their friends having more healthy relationships with their parents than they do with theirs. They're resentful when they see friends who have more freedoms than they do. There are all kinds of things that can be very triggering for a child or adolescent that grows up in an authoritarian household. They have less social competence and display difficulty dealing with a variety of social situations in any way that's healthy. They often have lower self-esteem than many of their peers. They have more issues with things like hyperactivity and poor conduct, particularly in school. They struggle with self-control because they haven't been taught to make choices and decisions on their own. Here's where the dangers are, folks. And while developmental experts agree that rules and boundaries are important for children, most believe that authoritarian parenting is too punitive and lacks the warmth unconditional love, and nurturing that children also need. That was definitely a ride down that particular avenue. So we're going to move on and kind of move through these uh, these last few a little bit more quickly. So some of the other ways that parenting styles that are common to evangelicals can do a lot of damage involve things like never talking about sex in a positive or healthy context. This one, a lot of evangelical parents are guilty of to the nth degree. Most Christian kids are clueless about their own bodies and their own urges. And when they awaken sexually, 
it's drilled into them that the impulses that they have are dangerous. They, they, they stop short of saying that they're wrong, but yeah. they do frame them as being dangerous and that they need to be kept under wraps. The problem with this is that there are plenty of people out there, both boys and girls, who will hop on the chance to take advantage of that cluelessness and educate them. They're out there. So who do you want them to learn these things from? Who do you want them to be comfortable talking to about them? You or their boyfriend? Or let's be fair, their girlfriend, because it can go either way. And there are a few things in life that are more dangerous to a young person than not being educated about sex and having a negative view of their own sexuality. There are a few things out there that can cause more problems for someone later in life. You know, everything from low self-esteem to out-and-out sociopathy, it can run the gambit. A lot of Christian parents also discount secular concepts in their kids' education, like science, especially science. Um, a lot of them do their level best to run interference on anything secular or humanist that their kids learn in school, putting strong emphasis on biblical counter-arguments that have no basis in truth or fact. This is the kind of thing that leads to things like COVID denial and refusing to take a vaccine as an adult. This mm. is where it starts. Yeah, I probably should have put this one and the sex positive dialogue together, but a lot of Christian parents discourage dating as well as other social activities. Again, let's attack their sexuality instead of teaching them how to make good choices and equipping them to deal with various eventualities. And we talked earlier about parents who don't let their kids go to the movies or do things that other kids are doing, amusement parks, especially uh, like water parks where they're going to be seeing too many scantily clad people. Oh, come on. Yes. Give me just a small break with this. A lot of Christian parents are guilty of forbidding any and all interactions with pop culture. No movies, no secular music, no books that don't say Holy Bible on them, or have author names like Peretti, Lawhead, or Elwood. You can read novels if you want, but they're going to have to be Christian novels. Yeah. You can listen to, to rock music, but it has to be Christian rock. You know, Word of Life even discouraged Christian rock. Yeah. They wanted us listening to, I mean, like gospel quartets and shit. That was as modern as they thought that things should get. And I did know of some Christian parents who didn't let their kids even listen to Christian rock for the same reasons they bought into that bullshit. But yeah, there's a lot of that shunning of pop culture that goes on. Now, to be fair, to be fair, most of my friends, most, most of the ones that I hung around with were actually more into pop culture than I was, especially in the realm of music. I had ditched secular music for like several years. I was listening to nothing but Christian rock. And there was a lot out there. I mean, the 80s was good for music in general. So there was a lot of actually really good Christian music out there. So I didn't feel like I was missing out on much, but it was a self-imposed thing. That was not my mother. And we did touch on this one a little bit earlier too, not allowing children or adolescents their own voice in disputes. I saw this a lot. I saw this more than, more than a few times where the parents take the, uh, take the posture that we're the parents here, we're responsible for you, we speak for God in all manners of your upbringing, and you will obey us. This, this is particularly true of Christian dads, because the dad is, of course, the priest and head of this household. So, of course, the expectation of compliance gets amped up considerably when it involves dad. And not only in evangelical contexts, you know, you look a little bit further back in our history and it was standard practice for children to have a quote unquote healthy fear 
of their fathers. Wait till your father gets home, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. I think about a Christmas story and Ralphie just pummeling Scott Farkas and everything that revolved around that, you know, just, just pounding on him and beating him and swearing and then mom shows up. And what is his little brother's biggest concern? His biggest concern is that when dad gets home, he's going to kill Ralphie. So this goes way beyond the walls of of your average evangelical church. Mm. But here's the thing. That movie took place in the 1930s. And there are people that sit in the pew next to you every Sunday who still think like that. And that's a problem. You know, I think I've said enough about corporal punishment in the beginning segment here. But since we already spent a traumatizing amount of time on it, I'll just add this one detail. Evangelical parents are more likely than any other people group in America to embrace and implement corporal punishment. And we've already seen what the outcome of that can be. Another thing that many, many Christian parents are guilty of is refusing to treat mental illness in their children. Christian parents are among the last people to seek competent counseling for their kids, even in instances where a child is raped, assaulted, bullied, or has any kind of experience that could lead to post-traumatic stress. They may go to a Christian counselor, but more often than not, they do nothing. And with all due respect, if you're going to go to a Christian counselor or do nothing, I consider that six of one, half a dozen of the other. Mm. Because, I mean, everybody knows that prayer and intercession will do the trick every time. That's really all you need, right? You don't need to send them to a competent therapist to actually deal with what's going on. Nope, we're just going to pray it out of them, and that will work out, and they'll be okay. Yeah, bullshit. Then, and you'll find out. You'll figure it out. Hopefully not too late, but you'll figure it out. A lot of Christian parents expect unwavering obedience. This goes right back to the whole authoritarian parenting argument. But not all parents who take this position are authoritarian. Many just look at this part of it as a biblical mandate. Children need to obey their parents, and the biblical consequences for not can be dire. And no, I don't think any Christian parent in 2022 is going to even contemplate stoning their child for disobedience. But I do know of plenty, myself included, who, as parents, took an unhealthy stance on this point when dealing with their kids, and still do. I was this kind of parent, and let me tell you, it did my kid no good. Eventually, we are absolutely going to do an entire episode on this, but I'm going to say just a a quick word about it right now. Homeschooling, okay? This is another really, really big mistake that a lot of Christian parents make. And yes, I know there are people out there who can competently do this, but not everybody can. And certainly not as many as there are who try. But I think that the worst part of this for evangelical parents is that they use homeschooling as a means of not having to deal with or navigate the social pressures that their kids would face if they were in a public school setting. So they just keep them home so that they don't have to deal with that. But here's the thing. They never learn how to uh, how to appropriately behave in social situations either because they're not socially activated. And that's a, that's a huge problem. Many evangelical parents also homeschool their kids to dodge things like learning practical science, secular themes in social studies, and more on the academic front. But the bigger thing is still that it's a means of ensuring that their kids don't succumb to social pressures, especially at the middle and high school levels. So to bring this conversation full circle, I want to speak to the adults in the audience who have endured some or all of what we've been talking about. Again, I'm speaking to adults. I'm not trying to sow subversion among the young against their parents here. We're talking about 
those of you who grew up with Christian parents and see the effects of it on your adult life. Let me make a couple of things very clear to you as an adult. For starters, you're not required. You are not required to love your abusive parents. And let's make no mistake about it. Everything we talked about tonight equates to child abuse. Everything we talked about equates to at least some level of child abuse. If you suffer from various mental illnesses and traumas that have followed you into adulthood, it is perfectly okay to point a finger of blame at your parents for that. And it isn't entirely necessary for you to forgive them either. It all depends on whether or not they've been repentant with you. But, you know, if after everything you've been through, you still love your parents and feel good about the relationship you have with them, great. You know, that's you. That's your relationship. That's your dynamic. And if it works for you, fantastic. But just understand that they aren't entitled to your love simply because they share DNA with you or that they didn't abort you, okay? Just because they brought you into this world does not place on you the obligation to love them or even respect them. And they don't deserve your love for taking the time to raise you either. That isn't an act of benevolence. It's a matter of law. If they failed in their role as your legal guardians, the state could easily take you away from them. The fact that they raised you doesn't obligate you to love them or even respect them either. You are not required to forgive your parents for any of the ways they fucked you up, especially if they have never apologized. Okay? For your own peace of mind, I recommend letting it go, but there's a difference between letting something go and forgiving it, okay? There's a huge difference there, and we've done an entire episode on the concept of forgiveness, if you want to hear some more of my thoughts on this, but forgiveness is not always healthy, and it is not always warranted. It depends on what's going on on the other side of the equation more than anything else, and along those lines, you have the right to feel good about ditching their crazy ideals and parenting faux pas as an adult and living according to your own moral code. If you've been abandoned by your parents for stepping away from the things that they taught you as a child, this is not your fault. It also speaks volumes about how much of what they did in raising you had to do with them and not you. They love themselves and their invisible sky daddy way more than they do you if they're willing to cut you out of their lives for any reason, especially if those reasons revolve around you abandoning things that you were taught to believe when you were young. Sorry to be so blunt, but again, DNA doesn't make love happen and it doesn't make it necessary either. Now, if you're a former Christian parent and you've been listening to all of this thinking, guilty, guilty, guilty. Well, you know what? Don't worry. You're in good company. I know that evangelical thinking had a major influence on how I did things, and I made very few good choices as a parent to a young child. I'm just going to put it right out there. Do yourself a favor, if you haven't already, admit your mistakes, not to Jesus, to your kids. Ask for forgiveness. Don't make excuses. Just apologize. They'll appreciate it, way more than Jesus ever would. And just a helpful hint for you here. A sincere apology never includes the word but. The reasons why should be understood by all parties involved. And 
if you are an ex-evangelical who is currently about the business of raising children, assess your words, assess your actions, assess your emotions, and ask yourself if how you're doing things or handling specific situations is smart, practical, or appropriate. You'll make mistakes based solely on the fact that those thoughts are still in there. Step back, think about your choices and actions, and when you make bad choices, again, apologize and do it immediately. When you make good choices, make sure that you give yourself credit because you deserve it, especially coming out of this thing and having to machete your way through all of the bullshit that was part of your upbringing. Yeah, you deserve credit where it's due. So make sure that you're not coming down on yourself too hard for the mistakes that you've made and that you take a step back and acknowledge how far you've come. It's very, 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 very important. And however any of this applies to you, keep in mind that things that happened, happened, and that you can't change them. Things your parents did, and this is whether you were in a Christian household, a secular household, any household, this applies to you. Things that your parents did are done, and you can't change them. And every parent makes mistakes. And again, if you're one of the ones sitting there just thinking guilty, 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 over and over and over again during this conversation... Just understand that things that you did as a Christian parent are done and you can't undo them either. All you can do is move forward. If you're dealing with the trauma that you either experienced or inflicted and you're doing it in productive ways, you are on the right path. We can't change the things that we did or experienced in the past, but we can make sure that we steer our futures in directions that lead us into better places. And if you're doing that or you're willing to try, congratulations. You're taking another crucial step toward getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. <laughs>